We're beginning a new series about something called the charismatic movement today. If you have no idea what that is, the word charismatic is actually in this particular discussion used as a theological term. It doesn't mean an influential movement. Uh, when we say charismatic, it's actually related to a Greek root, and I'll get to that. As far as I can tell, every Christian television station is charismatic. Uh, they're known for some bizarre events unusual practices, things that would, that would raise eyebrows and make people go, whoa, I didn't know if, if that's supposed to happen. Uh, you might have seen people uh, in, you know, all together in this big rally. They're all praying. They're all singing. And it's, it's, not like, you know, the, it's not just like standing and singing, but it's like this fervent singing, fervent praying. They're all sweating. It's, it's, you, know, you can tell that it's like very humid in that room. It's just hot. It's crazy. Uh, and it looks like some of them are entering some kind of trance-like states. They, uh, suddenly the pastor puts his hand out, uh, and either the person that he puts his hand toward or the group of people that are just in the stadium in front of him all get knocked over. And uh, you know, he, he, he kind of waves his hands in different directions, and everyone falls over, uh, and, and you go like, what is that? Is that real? Is there some trick to that? You might have seen some huge events where people are miraculously healed of things like crooked spine or uh, uneven legs, back pain, things like that. You might have seen people praying in ecstatic speech, these incoherent syllables that repeat again and again and again and again and just kind of turns into something like that. It's not communicative human language. It's something else. It's just a it's, it's just an, a verbal kind of expression of something, but it's not really words. Uh, you might have seen a preacher promise you a healing or a blessing or a miracle if you have enough faith, you know, and then sometimes and oftentimes that's stapled to the idea that if you have enough faith to make a big donation, then you can have this big blessing as a reward. Uh, there are common features uh, to, to all of this, and, and it all kind of compiles to what's understood as the charismatic church. Um, their, their worship always seems so much more supernatural than ours, if we're being honest. But is that worship better? Is that worship legitimate? Is that worship biblical? Is that worship right or wrong? Is that worship good or bad? Is that worship acceptable to God? The charismatic movement is the most popular and fastest growing influence in the Christian world today. It is a theological emphasis on supernatural uh, experiential mysticism is the way that I, uh, I want to refer to it, but supernatural experiences, really. Let me clarify. The name itself, charismatic, comes from the Greek word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis, which means grace, or charisma, which means gift. So someone who has a lot of gifting, you know, like you're really good at playing an instrument, you have a gift, you have a charisma. Charismata, which is the, the plural of that, uh, is grace gifts or spiritual gifts. That's how we translate it. It just means gifts, but we like to, we like to translate it with the word spiritual in front to try to distinguish it from uh, either physical presence, you know, like a, a Christmas gift. Uh, or from natural talent. We like to say charismata. Uh, you know, th those, are, those are spiritual gifts. Now, these emphasize manifestations of the Holy Spirit, the way that the, the charismatic movement, named after these spiritual gifts, they emphasize the manifestations of the Holy Spirit is the way that they understand it, where the more 
spiritual gifts, the ones that seem more supernatural, the ones that seem more mystical, uh, they give individuals enormous authority over large groups of people because these gifts are considered to be greater gifts. When you can do these seemingly magical things, then you must be anointed by God. There must be the touch of heaven upon you. These aren't the, the spiritual gifts that we normally think of, like generosity and teaching and encouraging. You know, those are spiritual gifts. Some, someone might be very good at something like that, but it's not always like that. They're talking about manifestations of the Spirit, such as miracles, healing, speaking in tongues, which is that ecstatic speech, or prophecy, where God just speaks to you and gives you a message, and so you can hear the voice of God. Most charismatic meetings will focus on praying, singing, dancing, shouting, anointing with oil uh, as some kind of a, a rite or ritual, or uh, many times there's some kind, some kind of a relic involved, some kind of an item, like a magic item that, uh, you know, something is very peculiar about this, and so there must be the touch of heaven upon it. Or this, this charm or this necklace has some kind of spiritual power. It's, it, you know, it, it, it is a... Uh, a, a charm of some sort that, that influences your fate. You might have heard of some of the strange phenomena that goes on uh, in some of the churches nearby, you know, you're praying until you see gold dust on your hands, um, a Bible that drips oil, just constantly drips oil. Uh, hundreds of gallons of oil have come from this Bible. It turns out that they had several of these Bibles. They're all manufactured. They were scams, and pastors were buying barrels of, of oil and, and supplying it. Baptism in the Holy Spirit, that's, uh, that's a thing in Scripture, but they've kind of changed the meaning of it to be the special event that takes place after salvation to indicate this new level, like you, you leveled up in your faith, in your spirituality. You got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and so something different has go gone on with you. Uh, grave soaking. Grave soaking is where you lie down on top of the grave of a preacher and you, uh, to draw out and pull out the power of the Holy Spirit, which is stuck in that body. And you, 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 you draw it out to, to uh, soak it in. Uh, flags and banners being used in worship services. You know, and as the, the banner or the flag passes over you and touches you, it imparts some kind of a blessing. Sign seeing or, uh, or treasure hunting, there are various names for this, but this is where uh, you, you say, God, give me a sign or give me some kind of a message, and you get something like the, a letter, the letter R. And so then you go out and you meet someone, uh, either you get a letter, you get a color, like the, you know, the color blue. You go out and you're, you're at a coffee shop, and then you just walk up to a stranger sitting by him or herself, and you say, what's your name? And that person says, oh, my, my name is Rand. And they go, oh, I think God has a message for you because he told me the letter R. Or you see someone in a blue shirt and you say, I think God has a message for you because he, he told me the color blue. Laughing in the spirit, convulsing in the spirit, vomiting in the spirit, barking in the spirit, spiritual trances. I was talking to, uh, I was talking to Irene, Daniel Irene, Theo Seth Irene, and uh, she and I were just talking because we both have come from charismatic churches in, in the past. And I just said, like, you know, what's some of the stuff that, you, uh, that, uh, that happened at your charismatic church? And she goes, oh, we didn't do anything big. We just had a lot of fire tunnels. Fire tunnels? What's a fire tunnel? I've never heard of that before. 
but that actually tends to be very tame. They just kind of, you know, like at prom, you make a tunnel with your arms and people pass through. They just pray over you, lay on hands and they pass through. That's fine, you know. The fire is passion. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, the charismatics, they're big on dreams, signs, visions. They're convinced that these things are real, like God speaks to me in dreams. There's no way to verify it, no way to test it, no way to disprove it. And yet they insist that, that I'm, I'm convinced it's real. Is there any evidence? No, none, but convinced it's real. Uh, they're big on binding Satan or binding demons, praying at, uh, praying at demons, claiming that by doing that they can prohibit or inhibit their, their activity. They have uh, children doing prophetic drawings and paintings. I remember uh, we sent, um, I, I, when I was a youth pastor, we sent someone off onto, onto this, this charismatic thing, you know, it was like a six-month venture, uh, this training program, and they were just saying how this eight-year-old was drawing uh, things on a canvas, and then everyone would come around and say, what is God telling our church to do? And this, this kid was in charge of the church in, in that moment. The charismatic movement is, uh, has this extremely poor understanding of the Holy Spirit when you kind of watch the trends of the theology that starts to pop up uh, from this movement. Uh, they ascribe to him roles and functions that God never described. Certain preachers in the charismatic movement are considered, quote-unquote, anointed. Uh, that means that they speak new truths, new theology. They are modern-day prophets or sometimes even modern-day apostles. They're regarded as having the same authority as the apostles of Jesus, the 12 apostles and the apostle Paul. Sometimes it gets bizarre. Sometimes uh, you hear one of these, these charismatic preachers, he says, tonight we have five healings for migraines, and we have 10 healings for back pain, and we have two healings for cancer. The first one's to call in on our TV station, you'll receive it. Other things are, are, are interesting. Gas tanks are miraculously filled. At least people claim, you know, I, I prayed and, and my gas tank was full. Stains disappear from clothing, like I was going to a wedding and there was a stain. And I prayed to God and behold the glory. That stain, that coffee stain was out of my shirt and I was able to go to that wedding. A necklace brings good luck. Uh, a common one is I was sad and I was praying and I could feel God's arms wrap around me and embrace me. People claim to die and have gone to heaven or even gone to hell and then come back. And then they write books and they make a lot of money. I remember when I was young, my oldest brother and I were watching TV. There was a preacher on TV on, on a certain charismatic station. I don't know why we were watching that. We weren't Christians, but uh, anyway, we were, you know, we were just watching TV, and uh, this guy, this preacher, he says, I can revive your dead electronic item, and you can do it too. And we're like, oh, really? <laughs> so, uh, you know, he, he shows all these testimonials. Several people gave, the, this, uh, you know, this guy gave several people this miracle, the power to do it. He enabled them, anointed them in that moment to do it. So these people, they say, they're, they're, my car started. You know, my, my rundown car was broken down and stuff, but then I prayed over it and it started. My refrigerator started working. The light bulb turned on again, stuff like that. So my brother, 
He goes, hang on a sec. He runs upstairs, he comes back, and he brings his dead watch, right? A dead watch. And by dead watch, it just means it needs a new battery. That's all it means, okay? It wasn't like broken, broken. It just needed a new battery. But he had a dead watch. We held it in our hands. He's like, put your hands on it. And I put my hands on it, right? And uh, we have it in our hands. The preacher told us to have faith. God would revive our electronic items. Uh, he's going to revive our watch. So while clutching this watch, putting all our faith into this moment, we repeat it after the preacher. He goes, repeat after me. Work! So you go, work! He goes, work! Work! One more time, work, work. And he goes, now, take a look. So, you know, of course, we're like, whatever, right? So uh, we, we look at the thing, you know, my brother opens up his hands, we look at his watch, and what's crazy is, afterward, you know, after having done this, he holds up this watch, we're both looking at it, we're amazed, because we found out we have no faith. <laughs> and so what now? Fortunately, the preacher told us what to do. Did it work? Praise God. But if it didn't work, don't despair. You just need to exercise faith. Why don't you call in and why don't you give a sacrifice to the Lord to express to him your faith? And guess you get it, right? Now we're asked for a monetary donation. And so we thought, well, how much should we give? And my brother said, forget it, I'm going to buy a battery. The focal point of all this is that the idea that, uh, behind it is all that the, the Christians, all Christians, in terms of, of what the charismatics think, is all Christians need to experience the filling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that is always accompanied by things like speaking in tongues, which is the, that incoherent babbling in syllables as if in a trance. Sometimes that's just called oh, receiving the Holy Spirit. Like speaking in tongues and receiving the Holy Spirit are, become synonymous to them. Or sometimes they call it the second blessing, right? You got saved when you placed your faith, but then a second blessing has taken place. Or they just call it something more. The dusty old gospel of repentance and faith seems outdated then, and you have a more supernatural experience of transcendence. You had to see things, do things, feel things that normal people couldn't. That's how you experience God supernaturally, they say. Now, this all began in 1906 in Los Angeles at a Methodist church. Some people think it started in Kansas, 1901, and then jumped to Los Angeles. Fine, whichever. But let's just go with Los Angeles for now because it's less than an hour away. People spoke in tongues. They claimed that there were miraculous healings. None of it, you know, this is 1906. We didn't have any record of it in terms of uh, video or audio or anything. The people were roused to some spiritual frenzy, and that, uh, that ignited something called Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism is the first wave of the charismatic movement, okay? And there are three waves so far. The first is Pentecostalism, and that took off in 1906 or maybe 1901, whichever. They claim that speaking in tongues was proof that you're saved. You need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You need to speak in tongues. That is the proof of your salvation. And if you haven't experienced that, you're not a Christian, according to Pentecostals. Then 60 years later, that was very contained. That was understood as the Pentecostal movement because they're saying that the events of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 
uh, became like the norm. That's how, you're suppo- that, how it's always supposed to be. The early church is the always church. And so since they spoke in tongues when, when they started to believe, that's what salvation looks like. And, and that, was, that, that idea, that teaching was contained very much in Pentecostalism. And then 60 years later, it kind of made this jump outside of the Pentecostal circle. In, 19, in the 1960s, uh, it, this happened at an Episcopalian church in Van Nuys, which is not that far away. Uh, in Van Nuys, they claimed a, a similar thing happened. You know, people started to speak in tongues, and they, they claimed that there were miraculous healings and things. And what was previously contained in the, in the false teaching uh, of Pentecostalism was embraced by this Episcopalian church. And then when that happened, other churches started to take note, and seemingly it started to spread to Baptist churches, Methodist churches, Presbyterian churches. So now it's going to actual legitimate saved churches. And that second wave is, is where the emphasis on experiential mysticism affected legitimate churches, not just Pentecostals. Then, and that, that's, so that's the second wave. Then in the 1980s, a third wave uh, hit the world. Leaders like C. Peter Wagner, John Wimber, they emerged. They started teaching things about spiritual warfare, binding demons and, and, and Satan and stuff, you know, how to do exorcisms and cast them out, things like that. Uh, it, it started to get really, really big. Uh, And then they started teaching at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, which is not that far away. All of this is so close to home. Why can't it be somewhere weird, somewhere far away, like Fayetteville, Arkansas, or something like that? Why can't it be somewhere like nowhere? But it's all right here in our backyard. They proposed ideas on, on miraculous healings and teachings that spread like wildfire in charismatic churches. Uh, it, this became most popular in Africa, Asia, Latin America. Uh, because they combine so well with the indigenous cosmologies of those areas, creating many, many cults. Cults that don't believe in Jesus, but still exhibit all of these things. The charismatic movement covered the globe by the uh, 1990s, affecting many denominations, virtually all of them, starting some brand new ones even. There are a half... As, as far as I know, from the latest statistics that I was reading, there are half a billion people that profess to be charismatic on the planet. Half a billion people. Right? That, and that's crazy because, like, there are one billion professing Roman Catholics. Half a billion charismatics. If you, you know, that's 500 million. You understand that, right? There are only 14 million Mormons on the planet. That means that there are over 35 charismatics for every one Mormon. It's a massive issue. And then for me, I grew up in a Korean church. I, w- I went to Korean churches, you know, growing up. My parents would take me to those. And, and that's, it's pretty accurate to say that almost every Korean church out there has a significant amount of charismatic influence that has affected their practice and theology. So there's a lot to say on this topic. It'll ultimately boil down to where you look for truth. It'll come down to where you look for truth, either from personal experience or from Scripture. That's really, I mean, I'm putting my cards on the table. That's what it's going to come down to. You're either looking for, uh, for truth from, from personal experience or from Scripture. And that's a point I'll be addressing as, as kind of the running theme throughout the series. But for today, 
that, that was the introduction to the sermon, <laughs> and here's, here's kind of what we're going to do. Okay, we're going to go in three movements here. We're going to talk about the heart behind this series, like why we're doing this. Uh, second, we're going to talk about the dangers of the charismatic movement. Uh, and then third, we're going to talk about getting worship right. Okay? Um, let's start with the heart behind the series. I, I'm very aware that most of us here, including myself, have come from churches with a lot of charismatic practices. And some of us even were participating in teaching them. But the point of this is not to embarrass or guilt anyone. Okay? I, I, I think some of you were scared. You heard that we were going to talk about this and you're like, am I going to look stupid? That's not, that's not the intent. It is to rebuke and to, uh, and to do so in love with the purpose to correct and to point us to a much better way, to show you a better way. As a pastor, I, uh, I know it's my job not only to proclaim the true gospel, but there's a burden also on my heart to warn against false teaching. I see that as a clear description of the, the preacher's job. Colossians 1.28 it says, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So if you notice, we have to proclaim Jesus, right? But we have to warn everyone and teach everyone with all wisdom. We have to warn, not just teach. It's my job to herald the gospel. It's also my job to preach and build up the people of God in such a way that includes warning against wayward doctrine. In fact, I think the, the job description for every pastor, every preacher, is what Paul tells Timothy, Pastor Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, if we can look at that. Um, starting in uh, verse 1, it says, I charge you, Pastor Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of, of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound, sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." Now, by the authority of Jesus, and as sure as his appearing and his kingdom are, this is what the pastor must do. Preach the word. Even when you don't see fruit, when you don't see great results, preach the word. Preach the gospel. That's what you must do. Don't resort to fads and tricks and gimmicks to spice things up. Don't try to make things more supernatural and mystical in order to catch attention and breed interest. Don't fake any of that stuff. Preaching consists of reproving, rebuking, and exhorting patiently with sound teaching. It's not manipulation. It's not sentimentalism. Don't just preach the good stuff. Preach everything. And warn against the things that would take you away from that. Preach the word. If something's not in the word, don't preach it. If it's in the word, don't neglect it. Preach the word. And warn against the false doctrines that are moving around in your midst. Protect your flock. If you don't do it, who will? So we have to do this. Because the tide of every generation is to look for faith in anything besides sound preaching. They look to, to myths. What's a myth? A myth is just a, it's, it's a story. It's a, a supernatural story that has no evidence. Reason disagrees with myth. 
And that's what you have in the charismatic movement. They get you to believe in stuff that you've never seen, never, never, never documented, never, never actually had proof of. They get you there. It's not in Scripture, so it's, it's not something that, that the Word is telling you. There's no reason from Scripture to believe it. They just say, trust me, I'm anointed. So we got to do this. People want spirituality, but they don't want to read their Bibles. They, want, they don't want to wake up on time, come to church, do the regular thing, serve consistently. They don't want to do that stuff. They want these, these incredible, supernatural, mystical experiences to shortcut the whole thing. Like, I don't need to do the mundane stuff. They want mystical experiences. They don't want to turn away from their addiction to alcohol or lust or slander or whatever. They want everything that feels like God is with them, but they hate obeying anything, he says, about how to draw near to him. That's what happens the farther you get into this movement. So we're going to spend the next few weeks bringing correction to the incorrect ideas commonly taught by the charismatic movement. We just finished a huge amount of time uh, in the, the book of Luke covering every single verse. So we have the main gospel in view. We've got the truth. It's all in front of us, right? So now we're going to take a hammer and chisel and like remove stuff that might have been taught to you. We're going to break off the stuff that should not be there. I think we definitely have the space now to confront false doctrine, keep our pulpit pure from subtle contaminant. Now, aren't there good aspects to the charismatic movement? So many people <laughs> in this room, when they found out that we're going to talk about this, said, but aren't there really good things that come from the charismatic movement? Yes, okay? And I do want to say yes, yes. I, I, I'll, I, I want to acknowledge that up front in case you feel like, wait, but you're not, you're not talking about this. Right, yes, yes. Same gospel, same Lord, okay? Uh, I do believe that many in the charismatic movement are, are part of the true church. They're, you know, they're saved people. We'll see them in heaven, and then we'll be like, hey, you shouldn't have done that, right? But, but we'll see them in heaven. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? So like, I, I want to acknowledge the fact that charismatic churches are not enemies, not all of them anyway. Many of them are good, good churches. Um, they just tend to have uh, like this, this other teaching that's kind of affecting them, and I think that it's an unhealthy thing that we need to bring uh, attention to. But charismatic churches, if we're being honest, they tend to have a higher participation on the global mission front. They, they just send way more missionaries. It's just true, by far. Uh, they also write some good worship music. They also write some bad worship music, but they also write some good music. You know, it's, they do. That's true of kind of any, it doesn't matter what group you pick, but they have some really cool songs. And their songs... Uh, they, they're known to be very emotionally expressive. And, you know, we could sit on a high horse and be like, well, it's not theologically substantive. You could say that, you know, but like a song like God is so good, God is so good, God is so good, he's so good to me. Like that's, that's a very simple song. It doesn't have a whole lot of theology. It kind of has only one idea in it. But it's like, a, you know, it's, you should sing that. That's a good song. They, uh, they, they have more sophisticated songs than that. I'm not saying, that. anyway. But they have a bigger emphasis on prayer, individual prayer, corporate prayer, right? And some of them uh, sing worship songs for hours. They do, you know, like uh, th those, those churches sometimes are known for like this, uh, you know, just kind of a short sermon and then hours of music, right? We like to flip that. We like it the other way. Many charismatics are true Christians. And so we, we, we do need to embrace them in fellowship but there are some big concerns. So let's get into the dangers of the charismatic movement. Dangers of the charismatic movement. Now, I'm going to give it to you as five dangers of the charismatic movement. 
But joke's on you, because each one is, is a twofold danger, so you're really getting 10. You get extra value today, okay? So five dangers of the charismatic movement, which is really 10, okay? So the first one is that theology isn't from the Bible. The, 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 like that's where they get their theology. Where? Not from the Bible, okay? Uh, that's that's kind of danger number one. I meet a lot of people who tell me they believe... Uh, they believe that the gift of miracles is still alive today. The gift of healing is still, you know, still here. Gift of prophecy, it's all around. The gift of speaking in tongues, it's all here. And regardless of whether or not I agree, that's not the issue. I can agree or disagree. It doesn't matter, right? But I ask the same question every time. Why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? I have never in all my years heard a response to say that the Bible teaches this. Because it doesn't. It has always been a theological position that came from something else. And it comes from two things, okay? The, the first part of the danger of theology that isn't from the Bible is theology without evidence. Theology from nothing. Theology from hunch. Theology ex nihilo. If what you believe is not in the Bible, and it's not what the Bible teaches... Where did you learn it? Why do you believe it? Based on what evidence? You believe in the gift of healing? Fine. Can you point to a single documented case of it? Just one. One. Just one. Not a story that you heard. Someone told you and it sounds convincing and so you're just spreading a rumor now. Uh, I'll, I'll take firsthand testimony. Were you born blind? And then someone prayed over you and you were healed? Were you born quadriplegic? Or were you paraplegic from a, a car accident? Then someone prayed over you, and now you have full mobility. Not partial, not a little bit, but like full mobility. Were you healed the way that healing worked in every case in the Bible, instantly and fully? To the claim by charismatic leaders that hundreds of people have been raised from the dead. Can you identify one? Just one. The movement's been around for 100 years. Over 120 years. Not one. Why do you believe this? What evidence do you have? If there's none... Just admit, none. You believe based on nothing. You've just made up your own theology. Don't do that. It isn't a biblical conviction. Don't pretend it is. You haven't shown anything in the Bible. You just decided this is how God operates. And now you're telling other people. And you're trying to teach that to other people. That's how false religions start. That's what false religion is. The Bible tells you not to do that. Everything you believe should be tested, discerned from people who know Scripture well. That's what it says. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Well, how do you test it? What's the canon? What's the standard? It's Scripture. And, you know, that's a big, long discussion we'll have later on in the series. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and, and Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. It's a single 
hyphenated word there in the Greek. The, uh, the, he gave shepherd teachers, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and in deceitful schemes. What does that say? It says that we have apostles and prophets. They're the ones that wrote the Bible. And then we have evangelists and shepherd teachers. They're the ones who teach the Bible. And they do that so that we become more like Christ. We become become less sinful, more loving, more mature, more worshipful. Why? So that we're not like kids that believe every trend and fad and gimmick and craze. Every wave and wind of doctrine. And it drives me crazy that the charismatic movement is described as happening in three what? Waves. And that's purely coincidental. I'm sure they're not trying to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're a wind of doctrine. We're a wave of doctrine. They're not trying to do that. But the point being, any theological position you have needs to be tested, derived from what the Bible intends to say. Otherwise, you end up believing in all sorts of aberrant, dangerous, deviant, and sometimes heretical, damning things. If your theology isn't from the Bible, either it's theology without evidence, or it's theology from experience and emotion. Theology from experience and emotion. That's the other part of the danger of this. If you believe that something isn't in the Bible, it might be because of something you experienced, because of something you saw, something you felt. You believe in the gift of tongues? Why? Because I saw someone do it. My mom had the gift of tongues, and so I know that it's real. Or I, I did it. I was praying, and one day I just, you know, I just started making nonsense syllables, and I, you know, ecstatic speech, and I was overcome, and I couldn't control it. And so there I am. I'm just, I'm going. So I know it's real. And then we ignore the fact that Buddhist monks do this too. They speak in tongues. Wiccan mediums, a bunch of Japanese cults, Ethiopian shamans, Haitian voodoo tribes, like huge amounts of religions in Africa. Some Roman Catholics, some Mormons. That's not like mainstream Mormon, but it's, it's there. So then, are they also speaking in tongues, receiving some kind of message from God? Are they also overcome by the Holy Spirit as they're practicing their voodoo? Sacrificing children? Are they speaking some angelic language? I saw them do it. Is that where your theological convictions come from? I saw it, therefore... That sounds a lot like you're living by sight, not by faith. Do not make scripture, do not force scripture to agree with your experiences or your emotions. Don't do that. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Your heart is the thing that will mess you up if you believe it all the time. It'll mess you up if you don't have a way to discern when it's pointing you to something true versus something false. Our hearts are prone to wander, prone to error, prone to deceive us. How do we discern what's true in our feelings? Well, we have a great example of it in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. 
It says, now these Jews were more noble than, than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with, with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So plenty of high standing Greek women and, and men. Where should our believing come from? from examining the scriptures. God calls that noble, not desperately sick. If the Bereans had to test the apostle Paul's teaching with scripture, then certainly anything that anyone else says needs to be tested with scripture. When you develop theology apart from the Bible, you never learn what the Bible teaches. And that's just this huge pattern, right? When, when someone's trained in the charismatic church, they're trained to read the Bible and just wait for certain sentences to pop out and be like, oh, this is what God is trying to say to me. And they miss the whole thing. I, you just ask a general question. What's the Bible about? And you watch them stumble. What's that book? What's your favorite book? Ephesians? What's Ephesians about? And you just watch them stumble. They've never been trained in that. Who's the Holy Spirit? And then there's confusion. There, there are some ideas that are right, and then there's some ideas that came from not Bible. How do the end times go? That's always a, a mixed bag. What is the church, and how is that different from Israel? Nothing. What's the difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant in terms of the people of God? You miss out on a huge thing. Now, it's not like you have to have this big theological acumen and you know, scholarship in order to be a Christian. It's not that. But I'm saying like huge things that God was talking about, saying like this is really important and really awesome to reveal about himself, become deprioritized because they want to be able to repeat nonsense syllables for a long time and say that that's supernatural. That's what God wants me to know. So that's the danger of theology that isn't from the Bible. Now, what happens to that? It moves into a second danger, okay? Because these are all going to logically uh, un unfold one from another, right? One, the one from, from the one before it. So if you have a wrong understanding, of, uh, uh, if, you, if you develop theology that isn't from the Bible, what's going to happen is you're going to develop a wrong understanding of certain spiritual gifts, right? And I'm not going to dwell on this too much because we're going to have an entire sermon later that addresses spiritual gifts, um, but how certain spiritual gifts work, like there, there's twofold danger to misunderstanding, having a wrong understanding of spiritual gifts. The first one is that you have, uh, you have the wrong understanding of how spiritual gifts work, the wrong understanding of how spiritual gifts work, right? Most spiritual gifts are understood plainly without much curiosity. The gift of leadership, the gift of teaching, the gift of generosity, the gift of serving, the gift of mercy, Right? These are things where you, oh yeah, I hear the, the name of it, and like, it's, it's very clear. But four particular gifts kind of stick out. Prophecy, miracles, healing, and speaking in tongues. And then sometimes attached to that is interpretation of tongues as a you know, fifth one. Now the Bible refers to miracles and healing, those two gifts. It refers to miracles and healings, uh, calling them oftentimes signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And then in certain passages, they're very obviously marked off as a sign for Jesus' apostles, okay? So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, just a proof text on this. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. 
with signs and wonders and mighty works. And the Greek grammar there indicates a parallel of apposition. So the, the signs of a true apostle are signs, wonders, mighty works. That would be miracles and healings, the supernatural, instantaneous breaking of the laws of nature in order to do something really divine. And the farther into the charismatic camp you get, the greater emphasis on these miracles. But if your church is only slightly touched by some charismatic ideas and stuff, then people uh, will jettison these two things first. They won't be big on miracles and and supernatural healings because that's too easy to disprove. So, you know, they'll they'll just like, they'll be like, yeah, 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 I'm not big on miracles and healings. They'll they'll kind of put those away. Uh, You know, they... They lose that part of the bad theology, but then to hold on to the prophecy and tongues thing, right? Prophecy and tongues in the charismatic church are, for some reason, subjects that people insist are real, and they either have added rules and added ideas to them, or they have no rules and no ideas about them at all. Anything and anyone can be claiming prophecy, can be claiming tongues, and it's considered legitimate. An eight-year-old can be painting something, and then you go, oh, that's prophecy, and no one has any rules about that. And they go, it must be prophecy then, because someone said it's prophecy. That's, That's never how anything works in Scripture, and it becomes easy... to It becomes this easy way to feel very spiritual despite being wildly unbiblical. There's no such thing as qualifications for who could teach the church. Maturity, having been tested, make sure he's not too young. Make sure he's not too young. Whether it be miracles, healing, prophecy, speaking in tongues, because it, 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 it doesn't matter. The theology doesn't come from the Bible, so it can be anything. It's a free-for-all. And like you're going to find out when we talk about the spiritual gifts later that one of the churches... Uh, near us was using uno cards to teach and impart and develop the gift of prophecy in children i tried it it doesn't work i'm just kidding i didn't try it but it still doesn't work the understanding is not biblical on their spiritual gifts they misunderstand how spiritual gifts uh, how they work, and the other thing is they, they misunderstand how necessary spiritual gifts are, how necessary they are. Now, are they necessary? Yeah, yeah, we need them to build each other up. That's true, okay? But the, the first wave of the charismatic movement was Pentecostalism, which said, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Like, the spiritual gift is necessary for salvation or is proof of salvation. It just depends on whether or not you say it comes before salvation, it's necessary in order to be saved, or you say it comes after salvation, you're saved, and the proof is you start speaking in tongues. It depends on which camp you're in. But to require speaking in tongues as either the cause or the proof of salvation is never taught in the Bible. Never. Not once, not once, not ever. Don't even try to use the book of Acts as the, as the proof text on that. That's not what it is. We'll get into that. What's disturbing is that Jesus, if you notice, never is described as speaking in tongues. Did, like, did he go to hell? And Jesus said, you can tell, you can discern who's saved and who's not saved by examining their speaking in tongues? No, you'll know them by their what? Fruit. You'll know them by, you'll see a transformed life. 
That's proof of salvation. The Apostle Paul makes it unmistakably clear that not all Christians will speak in tongues. Watch, let's just kind of follow the logic on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 29. Are all apostles? What's the natural answer to that? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? What's the natural answer? No. That is the consistent logic to which the Apostle Paul speaks. Not everyone is an apostle, prophet, or teacher. Not everyone works miracles or heals or, or speaks with tongues. And that, by the way, if you notice, the uh, gifts of healing, for some reason gifts is plural with healing, and it seems to indicate something else that we'll talk about later, on whether or not healing is actually a spiritual gift that someone can do, a skill, a power that they have, or those are little moments and events that happen to the church. Anyway, we'll get into that later. The charismatics think that they, they need a deeper, more spiritual life. It's an innocent desire, right? Who doesn't want a more spiritual life? It's an innocent desire, but they're taught very, very wrong means of getting to that spiritual life. Instead of focusing on the Lord, they focus on spiritual experiences and gifts. They don't feel spiritual unless they have that. So they end up thinking and feeling that Jesus is not enough. The Bible is not enough. Repentance is not enough. They need certain spiritual gifts to really be blessed, to really experience God. It's a wrong understanding of the gifts. Now, that leads to our third issue, spiritual abuse. This is a weird term, but for our purposes today, the way we're using this term, the operational definition, it means using spiritual gifts as justification to hurt or control or manipulate others. Using spiritual gifts as justification to hurt, control, and manipulate others. Uh, look, if you don't develop your de theology from the Bible, if it doesn't come from the Bible, then you'll come out with weird theology, especially on the spiritual gifts. If you have weird theology on the spiritual gifts, it'll result in two really bad outcomes. The first one is a spiritual superiority complex. Spiritual superiority complex. Uh, people who think that they have the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy or have the, the greater gifts, the big deal gifts, the supernatural, mystical gifts, start to be revered. They're anointed by God. The touch of heaven is on them. And so it, it, it ascribes to them a lot of spiritual status. And this divides the church. It divides believers into the ones who have and the ones who don't have, the spiritual and the unspiritual. And the, the people with the greater spiritual gifts feel above the rest. Their opinions and decisions are given more weight by everyone else. That is not a biblical dichotomy of the spiritual and the unspiritual based on your gifting. And the other way that that spiritual abuse comes out is a spirit, spiritual inferiority complex. The other side of this, you know, if you don't have those greater spiritual gifts, then you think something's wrong with you. You're taught that you're missing something. You don't speak in tongues. You haven't experienced the blessing of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit. You haven't really gotten something more. So you have no spiritual status. You have low spiritual status. You end up thinking you have to have these things. You have to have them manifest in your life or else you're not close to God. And your faith is not deep and it's not real. 
It's a very subtle bait and switch, and it trains the Christian to live not by faith, but by sight. Sight doesn't mean just seeing, it's experience. You, you have to feel things out. You have to do things and have things happen to you. It's not a trusting in the word, trusting in the gospel. It's not that anymore. It turns into you have to go out and seek these things that you can see and hear and touch, manifest. We'll see later in a different sermon. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is about spiritual gifts, and it specifically is about spiritual gifts to tell us not to think anyone is superior or inferior to another. Like to teach exactly the opposite of what ends up happening in the charismatic movement. Now, if you don't get your theology from the Bible, then you end up with weird theology about spiritual gifts. If you have weird theology about spiritual gifts, uh, it, it turns gifts into status. So what ends up happening is people want this status and stuff. So it brings out this, this fourth danger, which is fake faith. Fake faith. And that, that shows up in two ways. The first way is people fake the gifting. They fake the gifts. They claim to have dreams, prophecies, or, or some story about a healing. They make incoherent sounds to speak in tongues, and they go, see, I did it. They're encouraged to do this even by their own churches, right? Use Uno cards, learn prophecy. This is how you do it. They're, they're, like the gifts are orchestrated, manufactured. They're faked. Other churches will, will make you practice just speaking nonsense syllables to loosen your, your, your mouth a little bit and get used to it and let the spirit take over. And they manufacture the gift of tongues. It's fake gifts. It's fake faith. And if it's not faking the gifts as your fake faith, then it's spirituality without any discipline. Spirituality without any discipline. Meaning like being spiritual, but doing none of the work to get there. This idea that if you speak in tongues or if you prophesy, you're spiritual, you have spiritual status, you're anointed. This idea, there's no real drive then to read the Bible. You don't need to. You don't need to resist temptation. You don't need to repent of your addiction to alcohol or sex or whatever. You feel spiritually significant. So the spiritual discipline of persevering faithfully through trials takes a huge backseat. And especially if you're anointed, if you're anointed like the, the voice of God speaks to you in dreams or visions, then you don't need to repent of this stuff. And confessing it becomes radically deprioritized. Con confessing sin becomes this thing you avoid doing because now that will make you look bad. It'll make you look weak. Your gifting makes you look so good. And so you avoid talking about your sin because that makes it, you look bad. And it undoes this great status and respect and acclaim that you have. And it skips everything that the Bible says actually on how to mature, be sanctified, how to spiritually grow. It's fake faith. Any spirituality that doesn't come from discipline, from testing, from persevering is fake faith. Now at that point, if you get your, your theology not from the Bible and you have weird spiritual gift theology, then that creates weird spiritual status, which means people are faking their, their gifts or their... Uh, they're pretending to be spiritual without getting any discipline. What that results in is the fifth danger, which is mistreating God. Mistreating God. How then you interact with God becomes an abomination. And that shows up in two ways. One way is just leaving, leaving God. At some point, people discover in their charismatic churches that you know, the charismatic movement can't deliver what it promises. And so who gets blamed God does. 
people drop out of the church. They feel like, I did all that. I, you know, I went through all the prayer meetings and spoke in tongues and did all that stuff, but then they still struggle with sin. They still struggle with depression. They still struggle trying to find their identity and purpose, and that hasn't been taught to them because that's the stuff that the Bible teaches, and that's what the charismatic movement avoids. So they don't know how to, how to find the truth there, and so they leave church. All, that, all the stuff that they went through, all that supernatural experience didn't work in figuring out who they are, who they're meant to be according to God's design and God's will. They just weren't taught that. They were just told that they were supposed to experience these things. And that's not a cure because it's, it's not even what God told them to do. That's one way you mistreat God. Another way you mistreat God is simply unacceptable worship unacceptable worship. What's really being worshipped when, when your biggest concern and the biggest priority on your mind is experiencing spiritual gifts and supernatural stuff, right? What are you worshipping? There's a worship of these supernatural experiences. There's a worship of the mysticism rather than a worship of Jesus. So then when you inspect the heart, what's going on under the charismatic teaching is that the Father is disobeyed, Jesus is demoted, and the Holy Spirit is completely misunderstood and misrepresented. That's no way to treat God. And this is how charismatic worship services then often turn into these frenzied, cultic, ecstatic hysteria. It's unacceptable worship, and we need to get worship right. We need to get worship right. So... We're going to land on that today. Get worship right. And then we'll start to examine, you know, topic by topic in the charismatic movement and what they're teaching incorrectly. And we'll bring correction to that. But let's get worship right. In Exodus 32, God uh, has already used Moses to free the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, right? Israel was slaves. Uh, Israel is in slavery to Egypt uh, and then Moses comes by the power of God. He frees them and leads them out. They, they go, they cross the Red Sea. They sing, when you believe, right? And they get to Mount Sinai. Uh, when they get to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain. Everyone else is freaked out because like, God is like, uh, he's there. They know he's there. There's all this thunder, lightning, fire, smoke, trumpets blasting, all this stuff. But Moses goes up and they say, you go up by yourself, we're going to stay here. And he goes up to go speak with God to then figure out what to do next. And that's where God is going to give him the Ten Commandments. You know, he's going to write it on stone and Moses will come to the mountain. It's a big, big famous moment, okay? Now, what, what happens in, in the meantime? Because Moses will be up on that mountain for 40 days. So in the meantime, his brother, Aaron, who's kind of functioning as the high priest... He's the main guy when, when Moses is gone. He, he's the high priest over the people of Israel. He hasn't yet been ordained as that, but he's the high priest over Israel. What does he do? Exodus chapter 32, verse 4. And Aaron received the gold from Israel's hands, all, all of the people of Israel, from their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. That's a baby cow, right? Uh, made a golden calf. And they said, the, uh, then uh, they said, these are your gods, or it can also be translated, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then verse 5, Aaron says, tomorrow shall be a feast to whom? The Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, Yahweh. Right? So this is your God. Made this golden cap. This is your God. Tomorrow we will have a feast to Yahweh. We will have a celebration of worship to Yahweh. Now, that's a, that's a verse 5 by itself, sure, that, that portion right there, that's a good line. But if you watch it in the context, there's something really awful going on. Aaron and the people of Israel made this golden calf to represent God so that they could come and worship him and knowing exactly where he is and they could come and bow down and how you interact with this golden calf is exactly how you interact with God. You could bring him gifts, place food in front of it, all that kind of stuff, right? So, uh, so this seems like it is a well-intentioned thing. It's a way that they wanted to express worship because they were just in slavery for 400 years under Egyptian rule. And e Egypt, all the, the gods in Egypt and all the gods in all the religions of the world were worshipped in, in statue form. And people would go to temples and they would give offerings and bow down, burn incense, that kind of stuff. Fine. So God should be like, oh, look, that's cute. They're, they're doing worship the way that they know, right? Shouldn't he? Isn't that how he should react? He's like, oh, they made like this nice little thing of me. And then, you know, they want to be nice uh, to this thing and, as an expression of how they're being nice to me. Well, how does God react? In verse 20 of this chapter, which we're not going to look at yet, you can just reference this, but verse 20, um, Moses gets down. He's like, are you kidding me? And he's got the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, and like, I kid you not, he throws them on the ground, they shatter, right? Like, dude, that was 40 days, what are you doing, right? But he breaks these tablets, and then he's like, bring that calf over here. So they bring the golden calf, and he melts it down and stuff, he burns the pieces that were in it, and he grinds it into powder, and he's like, everybody drink it. So everyone has to drink it. Then, in uh, verse 28, he, uh, he's like, who's with me? Who's, who stands with the Lord? And a bunch of Levites come to him, and he's like, all right, go with your sword and start slaughtering the people that did this. 3,000 men are killed in verse 28. And then, because that's how Moses reacted, how does God react? Chapter 32, verse 35, it says, then Yahweh sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. They made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So corporately, they take responsibility for the action that Aaron did. There seems to be something wrong if you try to worship God in a way that he doesn't tell you to. In Leviticus 10, you definitely see this. God hates being worshipped in any way that he did not instruct. The very first high priest was Moses' brother Aaron, Aaron has sons who are also priests. Their names are Nadab and Abihu. And uh, in chapter 9, Aaron makes this offering to, to God, and he does it exactly the way that God instructed him. So he does this offering, he, he puts it there, and fire comes out uh, from God, and, and it consumes the offering, which is awesome. God has received the offering because it's exactly the way that God instructed it. Great. Very cool, best-case scenario. Then chapter 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. They offered an offering, a burnt offering, a fiery offering, 
that God did not command them to do. Verse 2, and fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed them, and they died before Yahweh. You understand who this is, right? These are the sons of the high priest. The spiritual leader, in terms of the priestly functions, the spiritual leader of the people of Israel, it's his sons. And they get consumed by, by fire. They, these are honored men. They are respected men. They are the next highest ranking priests. And they're incinerated by God's wrath. Why? Because they decided to worship God in a way that God did not instruct them to do. If you pay attention to the stories in the Bible, the worst sins are committed against God when, uh, when they are the sins of corrupt worship. Corrupt worship is always the worst kind of sin against God. And Israel got like a, a nice worship manual, Leviticus. The first 10 chapters is really just exactly how to worship God, how to do the sacrifices, all that stuff, what the priest should do, all that stuff. They, they got that. Explicit, specific, detailed instructions. God instructs his people exactly how he's to be worshipped. Don't try to improve it. Don't try to add to it. Now, in the New Testament, we just got to worship in spirit and truth, says Jesus in John chapter 4. Spirit and truth. And he has, you know, certain ways that he wants you to worship. Don't add to it. Don't, don't add these supernatural things and say, this is the Holy Spirit doing this in your life. Don't start using God's name to teach something God did not say. Don't instruct what God did not in instruct. This is where the charismatic movement leads. Praying until you see gold dust on your hands. Where is that? Bibles dripping oil, which aren't even real. Grave soaking, sign seeking, treasure hunting, laughing in the spirit, convulsing in the spirit, vomiting in the spirit, barking in the spirit, trances, dreams, visions, binding Satan, modern day apostles, fire tunnels, eight-year-olds doing prophetic drawings and paintings. What is this? We should be warned, and we should be taught. God does not want us to create new ways to worship and then say, God is doing this. That is unacceptable worship. Hebrews 12, 28. Thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, acceptable worship with reverence and awe. When you have reverence and awe, you don't start making up things and saying that he said them. What is acceptable worship? What worship does God consider holy and acceptable? I'm going to read you basically almost all of Romans chapter 12. And the reason why I'm going to do that is because I don't have time to include 13 and 14 and half of 15. <laughs> Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Okay, get that. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Meaning, since you get the gospel, you get his mercy, you understand his grace, you understand his undeserved goodness and love and forgiveness by the death of Jesus for you to pay for your sins. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? This is how you give your spiritual act of worship. Be, be renewed in your mind. Transform. You're not like the world. You're not trying to seek sensation. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what Scripture does. By the mercies of God, the message of Jesus. That's what renews you. That's the thing. It's the repentance and faith thing. He just spent 11 chapters getting all into this about the mercies of God and how it's the power of salvation for the Jew, for the Gentile. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't think it's insufficient for you. That's what this is all about. Verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's a way that you can actually give acceptable worship. To have sober judgment, don't think you're better than someone else. Verse 6, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If you're gifted with prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So whatever gift you have, use it. Build others up. That's one of the ways that you do acceptable worship. Let, uh, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what's evil. Hold fast to what's good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's acceptable worship. There is no reason to think that that's not enough. Go to a church where people are doing that and people will say, the hand of God is here. The touch of heaven is here. People will know you are Jesus' disciples by how you love one another. That's acceptable worship. It's biblical. Jesus and the apostles modeled all of it. Every Christian can do it. You can do it. No need for additional supernatural manifestations or experiences or greater gifting. It's in the humble things that you find the Lord. 
even the foolish things, it seems. Love, serve, bless, forgive, rejoice, endure, comfort, pray, trust. Give God the worship he deserves. No golden calf, no unauthorized fire, no unbiblical supernatural so-called manifestation experience. By the mercies of God, present yourselves as living sacrifices who will not be conformed to this world, but we will be renewed by the transforming of your mind, the renewal of your mind, able to discern God's will by testing it with his word. This is holy and acceptable. This is your spiritual worship. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have been abundantly clear on how we ought to worship you such that we know what to do and we don't need to improve it. We don't need to add to it extra mystical things. We don't need to turn it into this constant chase and pursuit of some magical experience to validate our feelings. In the humble things, repentance, faith, love and service, forgiveness, prayer. This is how we worship you. We give you our lives. We don't wait for some crazy moment at a frenzied rally filled with people sweating and falling into trances and disorder of every kind. but to take captive every thought and make it yours. Every intention devoted to you. Every conversation, every action. To have the mercy of Jesus, the work of him on the cross, his deity, his humanity, his all-sufficient work in view by the mercies of God, we offer ourselves. This is acceptable to you. This is what you want. So may we give you that. Adding nothing to it, not changing it, not making up truth arbitrarily without evidence or based on emotions. We just trust you. And we pray that the more we get to know the grace and mercy and love of Jesus Christ and his saving work, the more we will give ourselves to worshiping him acceptably with reverence and awe. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.